Good evening. Welcome, everybody. Um, hope you're all comfortable. Looking forward. I'm very, com- I'm very happy to welcome you here tonight. I'm Perna Sen. I'm Deputy Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, where we host the project that's co-hosting this event tonight. And the project is called Above the Parapet, and it's looking at uh, the journeys of women into senior public life. Not just how many women occupy senior positions, because we know quite a lot about that, but also more in-depth work about how women reach positions of seniority in politics, diplomacy, academic life, and civil society. Uh, As part of that project, some of you may have been at our launch in October, where former President Banda spoke about her journey into uh, the president's role in Malawi. And tonight we're delighted to host um, an event, co-host with the Political Studies Association, uh, a lecture by Sue Carroll, who I'll introduce in a moment. I'd like also to acknowledge that some people from our advisory board, who I now can't see, um, Sue Marsh is here, and uh, another person will be joining us soon, and a good friend for the uh, Institute of Public Affairs, Alison Frost, is also with us tonight. Um, let me introduce our three speakers, one speaker and two respondents, uh, who will then speak and then we'll open up for discussion. So first of all, I'd like to give a very warm welcome to Professor Sue Carroll, who uh, is going to present tonight the 2014 Political Studies Association Annual Lecture to highlight an impressive data span and argue argue convincingly, I'm told, (laughs) in advance, um, that women's pathways to elected office are varied and sometimes unique. Professor Carroll will also talk about the problems that Hillary Clinton faced at the the last time she ran for president and what she might encounter in 2016 if she decides to run, as many of us expect. Professor Carroll is a professor of political science and women's and gender science gender studies at Rutgers University and a senior scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics of the Eagleton Institute of Politics. She's authored numerous books on women's political participation, including Women as Candidates in American Politics, Gender and Elections, Shaping the Future of American Politics, and her most recent book, about which she'll talk tonight, More Women Can Run, Gender and Pathways to the State Legislature. She will then um, be followed by two um, speakers who will raise what they want to raise, but will be responding to what Professor Carroll has to say. First of all, Professor Sarah Childs, of, um, who teaches politics and gender at the University of Bristol, and whose latest book, uh, edited with Rosie Campbell, is entitled Deeds and Words. Also responding will be Orlando Ward, who is chair of the Political Studies Association uh, Postgraduate Network. She's a PhD candidate at the University College of London, the University College London on Gender and Political Campaigns. I've introduced them all to you in one go so that we have no interruption later and when we move from Professor Carroll to the respondents. And whenever you're ready, Professor Carroll, we're Great. looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Actually, just going to move some stuff out of the way. Well, I'm delighted to have been asked to speak to you and to share some of my research and ideas, but I want to start with a caveat. 
My focus is very much on the United States. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination on British or European politics, so I'm really going to leave it up to our, our discussants or respondents and all of you to decide whether or not any of this would apply here in the UK. The first part of my talk will be based um, on, on the book More Women Can Run, published during the last year with my, and co-authored with my colleague Kira Sambamatsu at the Center for American Women in Politics. I'm going to discuss a couple of our major arguments and supporting findings from the book, which is based on nationwide surveys of women and men serving in, in the legislatures of the 50 states in the United States. Then I will turn to the underrepresentation of women as head of state in the U.S. As you know, we've never had a woman president. However, the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination for 2016 is Hillary Clinton, who ran unsuccessfully against Obama in 2008 before becoming Secretary of State. I'm going to focus on the problems she faced in 2008 in trying to deal with gender stereotypes and whether and how these stereotypes might come into play should she actually decide, and I think she will decide, to uh, run in 2016. I want to start with uh, some graphs illustrating some of the patterns and representation of women in office in the United States. As you can see here, at no level of office do women exceed 25%. And the 2014 elections didn't really change this picture very much. We just had those elections. The increases were tiny following these elections. We added a few women but, to Congress, but we will still be under 20% when the new Congress convenes in January. As for governors, before the election, we had five women serving as governors in the 50 states. That's 10%. After the elections, we will have five women governors serving in the states, 10% again. And in the state legislatures, which is the focus of the research I'm going to be discussing with you tonight, just one of every four legislators nationwide is a woman. One of the really troubling patterns that we see at the state legislative level and one that motivated Kira's and my research is illustrated by this graph. Basically from 1971, when the Center for American Women in Politics started tracking the number of women legislators in the states, through 1999, roughly the turn of the century, the numbers of women tended to increase incrementally with each successive election, and some of us thought maybe this will go on forever. But since the turn of the century, we see what we consider to be a disturbing pattern of leveling off in numbers. Now, it's not a good sign for your health if you see flatlining on an echocardiogram. And we similarly do not think it's a good, it's a good thing for the health of the United States to see a flatlining pattern in office holding. There's not, really, there's not really been much change in the numbers of state legislators, women state legislators, since 1999. And while it's not shown on this graph, it appears from the data we've gathered that the number declined slightly as a result of the 2014 elections. However, the overall pattern is really a little deceptive because it obscures important differences between the two major parties. Basically, the number of women among Democratic state legislators has continued to increase over time, while the number of women among Republican legislators has not. This graph represents, uh, or presents women as a proportion of all the legislators of each party. And as you can see, back in the 1970s and into the 1980s, Republican women proportionately were a larger share of their party's legislators than were Democrats. But in recent years, that trend has reversed itself and reversed itself in a pretty significant way. Democratic women have continued to increase their presence among their party's legislators, while the proportion of women among Republican legislators has actually declined. 
So the flatlining in numbers that, that were apparent on the previous graph has a partisan dimension. It is more a Republican than Democratic problem, although the Democrats certainly could be doing better as well. The Democrats have their own particular dynamics. There are um, multiple reasons why their numbers have continued to increase in recent years, but one important reason is the increasing success of women of color. The vast majority of women of color serving in office in the United States are Democrats, and as you can see here, the number of African-American and to a lesser extent Latina legislators has increased over the past couple of decades. This has really helped push the Democratic numbers upward. If you removed women of color from the Democratic ranks, the Democratic trend line would look much flatter. Not as flat as the Republican trend line, but nevertheless not great. And there are big questions about whether women of color can continue to fuel increases for the Democratic Party and for Democratic women, since most of these women are elected from a finite number of majority-minority districts. And that strategy has just about run its course, I think, in the United States. While I'm going to focus on state legislators, I thought I'd take just a moment to discuss how trends in the National Congress compare to those in the state legislatures. The biggest difference is that there was little growth in the numbers of Congress until 1992, the so-called year of the woman in the United States, where, when there was a bit sizable increase. And since then, we've seen small increases with each successive election. But, it, but as with the state legislators, and that's a different pattern, by the way, than with the state legislators, where we saw incremental increases up to the turn of the century and then more of a flatlining since then. But as with the state legislators, the growth has been largely concentrated among Democrats. As recently as 1991, the numbers of Democratic and Republican women in Congress, while small, were very similar. Today, there are roughly three Democratic women for every Republican. And the increases among Democrats are in part due to the increases in the number of women of color, almost all of whom have been Democrats. Turning to our research, there are three broad categories of explanations for the low numbers of women in public <coughs> office. The first focuses on the political opportunity structure, um, the lack of uh, viable political opportunities. And in the United States, this most often takes the form of talking about incumbency. Most incumbents uh, seek re-election, and most who do win. It's very hard for a woman to challenge and knock off an incumbent. And when when a seat is open, there's always lots of there's almost always lots of competition. There are there are a lot of men in waiting. Um, now, you only have to look at the difference quotas have made, at least in some of the countries where, uh, where they've been adopted, to see that political opportunity factors do matter. And our study of state legislators takes this as a given. What we're really interested in are the last two categories of explanation. Some research, especially the research on political participation, has emphasized societal or social factors as key to women's political participation. These researchers have argued that changes in women's educational levels, occupations, or political ambition, for example, are critical to achieving political equality. Finally, there are those who emphasize political factors, such as the role of parties and organizations, as well as the role of issues and ideology in motivating candidacies. And basically, our research tries to examine some of these social and political factors to assess why progress has been so slow and why women remain underrepresented. Our research is based on nationwide studies of women state legislators conducted 27 years apart. In 1981, 
and in 2008. We compare uh, the, the universe of women, really, serving in state legislators, legislatures, all women legislators, with systematic samples of male legislators from the same states. In, 19, in 2009, we also conducted semi-structured, more in-depth interviews with 22 women legislators, many of whom were legislative leaders who were involved with recruiting candidates in their states. I'm going to uh, discuss two major sets of findings from our research. The first has to do with the pathways women and men follow into office, basically the background factors that affect their entry into office. As we thought about comparing data from 1981 and 2008, Kira and I decided there were three possible patterns that we might find. First, and I think this is what most people would expect, uh, we thought it was possible because, because of social change in women's roles, we thought it was possible that women's backgrounds and career paths might come over time to resemble those of men. This is what we call an assimilation model. Second, because social change happens, has happened over the past couple of decades for men as well as for women, just not quite as much change in gender roles, we thought it's possible that both uh, men's and women's pathways to office have changed over time and that uh, we might find that, that both men and women had converged on a new pathway into office. And this was our convergence model. And the third pattern that we thought we might find was one we called persistent differences. That differences in women's and men's pathways into office might look much the same in 2008 as they did in 1981. Now, what we, what we found was some support for all three explanations, but mostly we found support for the persistent differences model. In fact, it was stunning to me how little, cha how little change we found over time. This is just one example. Um, in, in 1988, we found women legislators were more likely than men to have occupations in the fields of education and health care, while men legislators were more, more likely to have come from the fields of law and business. And I didn't present the 1988 data here. You're just seeing the 2008 data. But guess what? In 2008, we found the very same pattern. And if I put the 1988 data up here, it would have looked a whole lot like uh, the 2008 data. There are, several different, uh, there are several other ways in which the differences between women and men look much the same in 2008 as 1981. Uh, one was in the area of political experience. Women were more likely than men to have worked on campaigns. They were more likely to have served as a staff member to an office holder. They were more likely to have served as an, in an appointed position in politics. And every kind of political experience, except for holding a previous elected office, uh, women were more experienced than men. They also were more likely to report that their spouses were very supportive of their office holding. They were, in both years, both, both uh, 1981 and 2008, women were less likely than men to have young children. And they were more likely to say that the fact that their children were older were, was very important to their decision to hold office and run for office. Um, I'm just presenting one, one of... Uh, so the data to illustrate one of these points, and that has to do with the, uh, the differences in the proportions of women and men who rated the age of their children is very important to the decision to run. And here, I do show the 1981 data as well as the 2008 data. And you see that gender differences were quite sizable in both years. And that really, it's a very stagnant picture, that, uh, that gender differences didn't change much um, over uh, like more than two and a half decades. 
But even though we found lots of evidence of persistent differences over time, we also found very, uh, remarkable variability among women in occupation, education, parental status, marital status, and political experience. Really what we found is not one pathway in office for women, but rather multiple pathways. And this was confirmed um, in our in-depth interviews when we asked legislators what kinds of qualifications and experience women needed before running for office. Often when we ask the question about, you know, well, what kind of qualifications and experience do women need before they run for office, we would hear a long pause because the women legislators just weren't sure how to answer that question. But then, of course, being political women, they went on to, to try to answer it anyway. And I just want to read a few of the, few of the quotes to you. Um, when asked, you know, what political experience, again, what political experience and qualifications they need before running, uh, one, one legislator said, none. It is a willingness, and once you have that willingness and desire, then it is a commitment to give it everything you've got. A second legislator said, I think you need to be educated enough, like at the newspaper level, the sixth grade level, and I think you have to like people. A third legislator said the main qualification is to be educated in city affairs and have a commitment to improving your community. And a, a fourth legislator said you need a base in the electorate where you're going to run based on work you've done in the community. And um, if there was anything that the legislators we interviewed thought that women needed to have before they ran in terms of qualifications and experience, it was this idea of being engaged and active within the communities in which they lived. But for the most part, they didn't mention any of the kinds of things we might commonly think of as qualifying someone to run for office. And so it was these findings of persistent differences and the fact that there are few, if any, requisite qualifications for running for office that led us to conclude that more women could run for office. We believe that political scientists and political practitioners alike need to think more broadly about who might serve in office. <laughs> women who run need not come from traditionally male candidate pools or occupations, nor do they need to be a particular age or really have any other, any other uh, defining characteristic. But what we also found is that while a broad spectrum of women could run, they are likely to do so only if they receive encouragement and support. And that points to our second major finding, that women more often than men make what we call relationally embedded decisions to run for office. What we mean by this is that women's decisions are more often influenced by the beliefs and reactions of others and more often involve considerations of how candidacy and office holding would affect the lives of others close to them. Here's, this is one uh, bit of supporting evidence for this idea. We asked legislators whether their initial decision to seek state legislative office was entirely their own idea, whether they had not thought about running until someone else suggested it, or whether running for office came about as a combination of their own ideas and suggestions by other people. And women were far less likely, as you can see by the two, two bars at the top of this graph, women were far less likely to be self-starters, to say that it was entirely their idea to run. Men, in other words, um, as we like to say at the Center for American Women in Politics, men are much more likely than women to look in the mirror and say, geez, I see the next governor of the state of New York or the next <laughs> governor of California. 
women rarely do that. In contrast, women were almost twice as likely as the, as the bars at the bottom of this chart show. Women were almost twice as likely as men to say that they had not thought seriously about running until someone suggested it. Other evidence that women are more likely than men to make relationally embedded decisions includes the fact that women state legislators, those who actually made it into office, were much more likely than men to have been sought out and encouraged to run by party leaders. They also were much more likely to report that an organization had played an important role in getting them to run for office. And finally, their families also matter. Uh, women were much more likely than men to report that a family member was the most influential person in encouraging them to run. So um, just to sum up the first part of my presentation, at least in the U.S., more women can run. We need to consider a broader pool of potential candidates and not assume that pathways that men have followed, for example, going to law school, are those that are necessarily going to yield the most women candidates. Because women's decisions more often than men's are relationally embedded, recruitment, support, and encouragement are really important for women's candidacies. And yes, encouragement and support from parties and organizations do matter. This helps to explain, in part, why women are more underrepresented in the Republican Party in the United States than in the Democratic Party. Although I don't have time to go into the specific details here, there's much more of an infrastructure to recruit and support women candidates on the Democratic side. And the final point is that social changes like women's increasing educational status, more women working outside the home, more women going to law school and becoming attorneys have not been and probably will not be sufficient to bring about a parity in office holding. Some of you may know the work of Jennifer Lawless and Richard Fox and other scholars who emphasize women's lack of political ambition as the primary factor explaining women's underrepresentation and suggest that a change in socialization is the, is the answer, is the solution, that women's mindsets need to change. Well, our work suggests that that's unlikely to be sufficient. Really, um, really, we need much greater political efforts to recruit, encourage, and support women in running for office. Okay, on to Hillary. Um, <laughs> Of course, if women are underrepresented in legislative office in the United States, they're really underrepresented in executive offices. As I mentioned all earlier, only 5 or 10% of the governors of the states are women. And we've never had a woman president head of state or head of state as you've had here in the UK. It looks like that could change with the 2016 presidential election. Hillary Clinton has not declared her candidacy yet. Um, but she's showing every indication that she's running and is at this point the clear front runner uh, not only for the Democratic nomination but even for the presidency. But then she was the front runner on the Democratic side, remember, heading into 2008, and along came a guy named Barack Obama. So you never know what's going to happen. We're still two years out from this election. But at the moment, there is a lot of enthusiasm and support in the, in the United States for her candidacy. As this cartoon illustrates, Clinton comes into the 2016 election with a lot of baggage and potential issues and problems to deal with. For example, now that the Republicans took over control of Congress with the 2014 elections, we're going to hear endlessly, I think, about Benghazi and anything else that they think will hurt her prospects of, of uh, gaining the uh, Democratic nomination and winning the election. 
I'm not going to talk about most of those things. Instead, I want to focus on the gendered aspects of her candidacy, specifically how gender stereotypes affected her 2008 campaign and whether and how they might come into play in 2016. Now, I've done some research and writing on this aspect of the 2008 campaign with another colleague at the uh, Center for American Women in Politics, Kelly Dittmar. But of course, everything I have to say about 2016, since it's two years in the future, is purely speculative. So rather than using data, I'm going to be using a lot of cartoons and images to provide evidence for my speculation. <laughs> There's been a fair amount of research on the gender stereotypes that political women confront. And I'm going to talk about four that Clinton had to deal with in 2008 and whether and how they might affect her campaign in 2016. And these, these are stereotypes related, to, first of all, to experience, to toughness, to spouse and children or lack thereof, and to attractiveness and sexuality. Let me begin with experience. Research has shown that women are assumed by the public to be less qualified for office holding than men, even when they have more experience and stronger credentials. The people who were running the 2008 Clinton campaign knew this, and so they really made experience the centerpiece of her campaign. Hillary Clinton talked about her 35 years of experience in politics, how she would be ready to lead on day one, and she constantly demonstrated in both her speeches and, and, and the debates her mastery of the details of public policy. The campaign strategy to emphasize experience worked. In fact, by February of, of 2008, which is when the primary season was really heating up, two-thirds of the American public agreed that Clinton had the necessary experience to be a good president. But the emphasis on experience came at a great cost to Hillary Clinton. In emphasizing experience, she ceded the issue of change to Barack Obama, because you can't argue on the one hand that you're super experienced and argue on the other hand that you're an outsider to politics. And of course, Obama's major campaign theme was hope and change. Consequently, the irony is that the first woman to make a serious run at the presidency, in other words, the ultimate outsider by virtue of her gender, came instead in the 2008 election to represent the status quo. Now, experience is one gender stereotype that Clinton will not have to deal with in 2016, especially after serving as Secretary of State. I think there are no doubts, well, are there very few Americans who doubt that she is experienced enough to be president. She still, however, will have to deal with the problem that her experience works against her being seen as an agent of change. But I think she's going to do something differently this time that will bring some of the association with change into her campaign. And that is this time she will talk about being a woman and the fact that she would make history as the first woman president. In 2008, somewhat surprisingly really, she never even mentioned the historic nation, nature of her candidacy until her concession speech where she talked about how her candidacy had brought about 18 million cracks in the glass ceiling. I think we're going to see her uh, see something very different this time. I think we're going to see her appealing publicly and explicitly to women voters on the basis of being a woman and in fact you know, I think she's already starting to do this. The other gender stereotype that Clinton's 2008 campaign dealt with centrally and effectively is the concern voters have over whether women will be tough enough to take command and handle the emotional demands of office. The problem for Clinton was that her 2008 campaign, went again, went overboard on toughness. Uh, the trick for political women 
or as research shows really for women in any kind of leadership position, is that they have to strike a balance between toughness and niceness or likability. Women have to be tough, but they can't come across as too tough. Well, Clinton came across as so tough that her toughness was actually mocked repeatedly throughout the campaign. Um, These Hillary Nutcrackers that I've pictured here on the right side of the screen were sold all over the place in the United States. And in just the past few weeks, I've noticed that um, urban outfitters online put them on sale on the Internet, um, where they they again sold out really quickly. Um, And as another example, Tucker Carlson, a a cable TV pundit, observed, and he observed this more than once um, on, on TV, that, quote, when she comes on television, I cross my legs. So a big problem for Clinton in 2008 was that she came across as strong but not particularly likable. This time around, we're already seeing signs that she will show more of her personality and humor on the campaign trail. Everyone knows she is, she's tough. I, few people doubt that. Now she has to come across as somebody voters want to have a beer with. That seems, as you probably know, to be the ultimate test in the United States. People vote for president because they they like the person, because it's somebody they want to have a beer with, or at least some voters do. And a couple of, I'm going to show you a couple of cartoons from the 2008 campaign that illustrate Clinton's toughness. Um, The first one is from The Economist, and it's just one of my favorites, which is why I'm showing it. Um, And the second one, References someone I'm sure is a favorite in this audience. <laughs> Increase, interestingly, this cartoon illustrates what Thatcher did so well, I think, and what Clinton didn't do well in 2008, which is to balance masculinity and femininity, to temper the toughness, even the kind of hyper-aggressiveness, with familiar touches of femininity. Now, for Thatcher, um, she did that in part by wearing her signature pearls and having her ever-present handbag. We may not see Clinton with signature pearls, but I guarantee you we will see more of her feminine side on the uh, 2016 campaign trail. Now, the third political stereotype women have to deal with is what to do about the spouse or chil- uh, and children, or if they don't have a spouse and or children, what to do about the lack thereof. My one-liner on this is that families are viewed as support systems for political men, but for political women, they're seen as an additional set of responsibilities. So if women have young children, voters worry that women may be need excuse me, may be neglecting their maternal responsibilities. Children just aren't an issue for men in the same kind of way. And because men are viewed as more dominant, there's always scrutiny and concern over how the husband, if there is one, will respond to having his wife in the limelight. And while I'm not going to discuss this now because it's really not relevant for Hillary Clinton, not having a husband or children also brings its own unique set of problems for women. Of course, Clinton's daughter was an adult in 2008, so stereotypes involving children never came into play in her campaign. But as we all know, her husband Bill was a big problem, and (laughs) and one that the campaign clearly had a hard time managing. And um, these are just a couple of the many cartoons from the 2008 campaign illustrating some of the issues that the Clinton campaign had to deal with um, related to, uh, to Bill Clinton. And then um, this is a cartoon illustrating what could become a problem, I think, for Hillary Clinton in 2016. 
Bill Clinton at the moment is really popular uh, right now in the United States, and some pundits and voters would welcome a co-presidency, but others worry that he'll have too much influence. Having a wife of a former president as a potential president is unprecedented. Um, in U.S. politics. So we will see how our campaign chooses to deal with this issue of what his role would be, will be in the campaign and what it would be in the new, in the new administration if she's elected. One thing for sure, uh, the campaign will have its hands full because Bill Clinton is not an easy person to manage. <laughs> and while I mentioned that children weren't an issue for Hillary Clinton in 2008, Hillary um, just became a new grandma and this is already becoming an issue for her, her campaign. The, mix, the media has been pretty fixated on this grandma idea. Some have speculated that because she is a new grandma, she won't want to run or that her focus will somehow be divided as a candidate or as president. And um, there are a couple of illustrations on this, so on this slide um, to, to, to show how the, this issue is already receiving attention. Um, the, the, the uh, title at the top of the slide, The Pros and Cons of President's, President Grandma, is actually not from a tabloid, um, but from a news magazine, Time, uh, which is the, one of the major news magazines in the United States, who ran a big article after the birth of her grandchild. Really? Um, and, and contrast this with Mitt Romney, the Republican nominee in 2012, who has 23 grandchildren. <laughs> In fact, when his 23rd grandkid was born, he sent out a tweet welcoming grandchild number 22. So <laughs> he has so many grandchildren, he's lost count. <laughs> but no one has ever raised the question of whether he might not run, want to run for president or would have had a divided focus um, because of his grandchildren. Of course, the fact that Hillary is a new grandma is a positive for her campaign uh, as well as a negative. She and her campaign can use it to help to humanize her, to create a bond with women voters, to help uh, counteract the, the uh, image that she is perhaps too tough. And the final gender stereotype that political women must deal with has to do with attractiveness and sexuality. Research has shown that more media attention is devoted to a woman candidate's appearance, uh, and women candidates have to walk a line uh, by appearing attractive but not too attractive. Clinton tried in 2008 to walk this line and, and to uh, deal with appearance by cultivating a more androgynous image, one that was neither too masculine nor too feminine. And she did it in part by adopting a uniform. What was her uniform in 2008? She wore pantsuits. She constantly wore pantsuit um, to not call attention to her, her appearance. She also stuck to one hairstyle because for her many, her 35 years or whatever in politics, she had constantly been, um, her, her hair, her changes in hairstyles had constantly been a subject of attention. Yet she still couldn't avoid criticism. And by the way, the collage on the right is from the 2008 campaign trail, but it isn't about Hillary Clinton. I, had to, I just had to show you this because I, th I just find it so fascinating. These are photos of Sarah Palin, who was a Republican nominee for vice president in 2008. And uh, the media photographers were, for some reason, just completely obsessed with taking pictures of her legs. Now, there are no photographs of Clinton's legs from 2008, to my knowledge. And maybe that's because they were hidden behind those <laughs> pantsuits. But the media found plenty of other things about appearance and demeanor to comment on. 
Uh, th first of all, there was lots of commentary about the pantsuits, even though she tried to use them to detract commentary. She once wore a slightly low-cut top on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and that prompted a flurry of media commentary, including an article by the fashion critic of the Washington Post. Um, and the media criticized the way she laughed. The New York Times, for example, this is unbelievable to me, but the New York Times devoted an entire article in its national news section to an analysis of the Clinton cackle uh, with the goal of uncovering what was behind the laugh. Was it genuine or was it calculated? And Clinton was constantly accused of lacking authenticity. Every move was viewed by some commentators as calculated and controlled as though she was a robot. And this, of course, fed into the idea that she wasn't warm enough or that she wasn't likable enough or that she didn't show her humanity. Some of you may remember Obama's comment during a debate in New Hampshire where he observed, uh, quote, you're likable enough, Hillary, end quote. That, too, just added fuel to the perception that Hillary Clinton wasn't very likable. And just a final comment on this cartoon. Not all the media commentary on appearance and style is reserved for women. John Edwards, who was also a candidate for the Democratic nomination in 2008, did a lot of primping uh, in front of the mirror before, before he did his public appearances. So he received some attention for his appearance as well. But the amount of attention he received was not nearly on the same scale as that which uh, Hillary Clinton or Sarah Palin received in that election. <laughs> Now, I anticipate that Hillary Clinton's appearance will continue to receive attention if she runs in 2016, but that one aspect in particular will receive a lot of attention. In fact, it already has. Rand Paul, a likely candidate for the Republican nomination, has already alluded to Clinton's age several times. Clinton will be 69 in 2016, younger than Ronald Reagan was when he was elected, but apparently too old in the eyes of some to become president. And yes, there's a gendered aspect to this age issue. As the comment by Rush Limbaugh, a conservative radio host, uh, at the top of the screen here, which was made during Clinton's 2008 campaign, illustrates, where he said, will Americans really want to watch a woman get older before their eyes on a, on a daily basis? Um, I suspect that we're going to see a lot of talk about Clinton's age. We're going to hear a lot of talk about Clinton's age and see a lot of pictures like this one highlighting uh, Hillary Clinton's wrinkles. The, uh, the other personal issue that we're going to hear a lot about related to her age is also related to her age is her health. Now, obviously, there was a little photoshopping on this cartoon, but you may remember that in 2012, Hillary Clinton fell and suffered a concussion. She had some uh, short-term, she was found to have a blood clot and had some short-term double vision and dizziness uh, after the fall. And there's been a lot of speculation on the right that the fall might have caused long-term damage. For example, last summer, Karl Rove, uh, one of George W. Bush's top advisors, who ironically was referred to as George Bush's brain. Um, anyway, Karl Rove publicly suggested that she might have sustained a brain injury. Others on the right have suggested that she has a heart problem that's being, somehow being hidden from the public. And I think we're going to continue to hear such speculation. And of course, her campaign will have to figure out how to deal with all this talk about her health. This cartoon humorously suggests one possibility that, of course, would help to counter the gendered perception that she isn't warm and likable. Because after all, she does have a heart after all. Okay, 
Um, let me stop here and just say in conclusion that I think Hillary Clinton will face a number of challenges in running for president in 2016, and some of them will be related to her gender. In particular, she will need to show more humor, more personality, and more warmth on the campaign trail in 2016 than she did in 2008 to balance out her image as a tough leader who is hawkish on defense. She needs to find a way to keep Bill Clinton under control and deal with the co-presidency questions that inevitably will come up. And she needs to be ready to deal with questions and what will surely be a right-wing attack related to whether she is too old or not healthy enough to keep up with the demands of the presidency. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Professor Carroll. What a fascinating talk. So many things I want to ask you, but I shall hold back for now. Uh, just noting the tough, not too tough, attractive, not too attractive. Well, a lot of that was so resonant for us here, actually. Kitten heels come to mind. Um, I think people know what I'm talking about. But I will just straight away hand over to Professor Sarah Childs, who's going to respond first. Thank you very much. Is this, is this working? Can you hear me okay? Okay, brilliant. It doesn't have that normal terrible thing in your ear from this angle. Um, before I make my two brief um, interventions, I do want to acknowledge um, the fact that we have Sue Carroll here. As a PhD student back in the 1990s, Sue's early studies of 1980s American women and politics really was important for those of us who in those days were studying the UK because it felt, well, it gave us a sense of what we could do over here. And I do want to acknowledge that. I think that's very important that we recognize the heritage. And I know there's a number of women in politics, um, professors and um, scholars and other students in the room, and I do want to acknowledge that. Thank you. I also want to recognize that her center at Rutgers also points to the importance of institutionalizing gender and politics research. It's still sometimes very hard to do gender and politics research in this country and elsewhere. And again, having centers that are institutionalized make it easier for us to develop networks and have sites that can really do that. I was very pleased to be invited by the Political Studies Association to offer a couple of thoughts on Sue's contribution tonight. I had the pleasure last week of spending a whole day in a cafe, a very nice cafe, I have to admit, reading Sue and Kira's book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and do recommend it to you. And I wouldn't say that. If you know me, you know I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. Um, but do treat yourself to a library coffee if you can't, of course, afford it, but find a nice cafe and, and we'll keep spend you awake. <laughs> I'm also not going to talk about Hillary. I'll leave that to others. But I will say that I'm very much looking forward to the PSA Women and Politics nomination party that we didn't have last time round, and maybe we can do that again. Rosie's going to organize that for us. So let me move on to some more substantive points. The first points to the importance, I think, of the emphasis of intervention in getting more women into politics. There's a lot of stress in this book on the word recruitment, and I think the way that Sue and Kira use it suggests that it's a very creative and active word. They're really using it as a verb. And yet, when we compare the UK to the US and the role of quotas, both in the UK and their absence in the US, and indeed the use of quotas elsewhere, there are about three points in the book where Sue and Kira rather lament that changes in the electoral rules that might mandate and increase the number of women in politics just appears nowhere on the agenda. It's so far off the agenda. 
And, of course, we can explain that away in terms of the political differences between the U.S. and many other places, because, of course, the global evidence suggests very strongly that quotas, when they're well-designed and well-implemented and have lots of penalties, I can see Rainbow at the back, Rainbow Murray, who writes on French politics, that actually they can work. So I'd really like to hear a little bit more about why the Americans are so resistant to such an intervention when the evidence is so strong that quotas can deliver. And, of course, we have our own debates in the UK here with only, to date, the Labour Party adopting a party quota. But it seems to me that there are increasing debates about the fact that we cannot leave it to the parties to deliver equality of representation. I see the 50-50 campaign in the audience, to which I also wish to give a brief shout-out. So if quotas are very unlikely in the US, and I'm hoping you'll say a little bit more about that, and therefore they're not worth activists and perhaps academics using up some of their energies to campaign for, I wonder what other changes to the electoral rules might be worth trying to secure. You talked a lot in the book about the cost of running for politics, and I wonder whether there might be interventions there. So are there other electoral rules that might be changed, are more imaginable and maybe more achievable? So that's my first comment. The second really focuses on the point you made about the the importance of recognising the role of women of colour in democratic successes in increasing the numbers of women. In the UK, we have a similar under-representation of black women relative to white women as you do in the US. There has been talk historically, and perhaps the talk continues, about the fact that Labour's policy of all women shortlists has not delivered very many black women into the UK Parliament, although my understanding is that we may see different figures next, well, six months in six months' time. But I'd really like to ask you to say a little bit more about the way in which or how we might better understand the activism of black women in the U.S. Because one of your findings was that they are less likely to be recruited in that very active sense that you use it, which I think is a very interesting use and one that's very helpful. So I'm interested to understand how these women are able to participate, given they are less actively recruited than other women. And perhaps from that, and I know you said you didn't want to talk about British politics, I wondered whether we you might be able to just suggest how we can mobilise that constituency of women too so that the numbers of women both increase but also the diversity of women in politics increases. Thank you. Respond to sure, um, I'd be happy to respond. Those are both really difficult questions <laughs> but I very much appreciate them. Um, well, the, the, the whole point, the whole question about quotas in the United States is is pretty much a non-starter in the U.S. and the and the and the reason is um, well, so let me say first of all, we do have quotas in the United States. Um, we have quotas. The Democratic Party has quotas for their convention delegates. The Democratic and the Republican Party have quotas for uh, two of their their major uh, you know their their major party committees. Uh, you know, so, so there there is a history of of quotas in the United States. Of course, we don't we know we don't call it quotas. And, and when they worked for uh, back in the 1980s, when they worked to get the um, equality between women and men in in the uh, representation of uh, of women in the in the Democratic delegations, um, they they carefully avoided the word quota. They called it equal division, um, and that that was, I think, very intentional. Uh, and w- well, one thing that I say, and I say this kind of cynically, but 
you know, and I say this when I teach, um, which probably just makes my students more cynical, but I, I always say that one of the reasons uh, women and men have equal representation is because these party committees and convention delegates don't matter too much. As, as convention delegates came to have less and less power in the United States, uh, women's presence increased more and more. But um, but aside from that, there are there is there are there are quotas in the United States. Um, but but the reason that we can't really call them quotas, talk about quotas, can't argue for quotas, um, has a lot to do with the history of affirmative action in the United States, um, and you know which which tried to open up opportunities in employment, education, various spheres for uh, both. African Americans and for uh, women, for minorities and for women, and um, and there has been a public backlash um, against affirmative action. So whenever you mention the word quotas, because that's how that's how the attack on affirmative action happened. It was called quotas. You're setting quotas for people. Um, so the word quotas has a very negative association in the United States, which makes it very difficult to even um, raise that issue in public discourse. And the minute you start talking talking about quotas in politics, it will be attacked, um, you know, and, tr and people will try to link it uh, in, in some way to the, the, the feelings that, that people have about affirmative action. So, um, so, so the notion of quotas is very, very difficult. We have tried, there have been other reforms in the United States, uh, one in particular, which some of us thought might actually help increase the representation of women. And, um, and, the, and the reform I'm thinking about is term limits, which, um, you know, where, where we had this movement in the United States to have the, and some states passed it, um, you know, where people can only serve for a couple terms and they're thrown out of office. And in fact, we've always had uh, term limits for the president. The president can only serve for two terms. Um, uh, but, but anyway, w they implemented uh, term limits in state legislatures in several states, and we thought, oh, wow, the women in politics scholars thought, well, wow, this increases political opportunities. Maybe we'll see the numbers of women go up. Well, it unfortunately, it didn't work out that way, because a lot of the seats that where a lot of the seats where a lot of seats opened up, where seats opened up, there often was not a single woman in either party's primary, a single woman standing for election, you all would say, or we run in the United States because we're more hyper type A. Um, we don't stand for any, we don't, we don't stand around for anything. Um, but, but anyway, um, you know, you would find not not even a, a single woman candidate running running in these races, um, which again brings us back to the point of the book, I think, which is the importance of encouragement, support, recruitment. You know, we need to be out there trying to get women to run when these when these um, opportunities occur. So the numbers it varied from state to state, but overall the numbers really didn't go up um, in, in term limited states across the board. So so that rules change didn't didn't have the effect that some of some of us hoped it would it would have um, other rules of changes that might be achievable wow that's a that's a tough one um, uh, changes in public and financing campaigns um, you know th there are different rules get made for financing campaigns um, and then people always find a way in the United States around them. The parties, the candidates, they find ways around them. Um, so they really have the, you know, it's unintended consequences. They really have quite the effects that they have. And in fact, the women's movement in the United States, oddly enough, has now become a defender of the current sort of 
system of campaign finance because because of the success of this group called Emily's List, which is a political action committee, a, a group, an organization that funds women candidates on the pro-choice women candidates on the Democratic side, and they've equalized at the congressional level the the financial playing field for um, for women and men, and because they've done that, they don't want to you know they really don't want to see the system. Um, particularly change. So so feminism used to be kind of opposed to, you know, big big, you know, uh, campaigns being so expensive, and now it's a little more organized feminism is a little more divided um, on that issue because they've they figured out how to make the system work. Um, and the real the real problem with reforms is that it's and I'm sure it's true here as well, is that it's the people in power who benefit from the way the system is now who have to bring about the reforms. It makes it very, very tough um, to try to figure out how to get a reform passed that would actually um, bring about a reasonable change. So enough, enough with that question. Um, how to understand the activism of black women in the United States? Well, this is a whole course. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have time for all this. You know, it's the, the culture in the background in the United States, um, because of our history of slavery and then disenfranchisement in the South as a result of Jim Crow laws that kept blacks from, even when they were supposedly on paper enfranchised, from actually being enfranchised, has, um, you know, has led to, I mean, uh, led to a different culture in the black community and a, and, and, a different sort of political dynamic in the black community as well, but um, but black women actually fare pretty fair. Um, well, let's put it this way: black women are a higher. Uh, proportion of black public officials than white women are of white public officials. In other words, black women within the context of the black community do better in terms of um, of um, getting into office, and that really has to do with, I think, the peculiar dynamics of or the the unique dynamics of uh, of American history. Um, they they are less actively recruited, but I think in part that's because they come from um, they come from basically what are our safe democratic districts, um, and um, and they come from they tend to come. Not entirely, but I'm now actually, as a result of this past election, I'm very proud of this. I'm now, I am now actually represented by one of only about, I think there are only like two or, well, three, I guess three, um, African American women in the country who are not elected from majority black districts, uh, majority minority districts, um, and and one of them is now my representative. Um, but but there. Uh, my congressional representative, but but almost all of the uh, black black women, and to a great extent the Latina the Latinas as well, come from majority minority districts where the majority of the population, or at least the near majority of the population, is from that ethnic group. Or in the case of Latinas, sometimes it's a, a mixed district of of blacks and and Latinos. But there's a, you know, it's a it's a majority minority district, um, and those have been those have actually been. And, um, these were actually legally created. They were created to remedy the problem of uh, black exclusion from representation. Um, and you know, and and oddly enough, um, what's 
uh, well, that strategy is almost, I mean, that's basically not going to happen much more. I mean, we've reached, uh, you know, we have as many uh, majority minority districts as we're probably likely to have. Um, it's, it's all complicated in terms of the court thing. But, but one of the ironies here, you know, it's always unintended political consequences. One of the ironies here is that the Republicans are really happy to have these majority minority districts because it puts all the Democrats in one district, and then they have created uh, safe Republican districts. So then they move all the conservative white voters into another district and makes the district very, very safe for them. So, um, you know, so, so uh, you know, it has had Thank different you. consequences than in, intended. Thanks for connecting the first and the second question then within role of electoral <laughs> rules and explaining That's the right. second question. Very, very important. They don't always happen the way you think. <laughs> Thank you. Paul Lander. Um, so I'm going to ask you some Hillary questions. Mm. You, in your talk, you talked a lot about the um, kind of latent gendered responses to um, Hillary Clinton's 2008 <laughs> campaign. And um, I'm wondering um, to what extent next time around do you think that maybe these can be mitigated by explicit reference to gender in her campaign? I'm wondering um, to what extent the first woman frame is useful for her this time round, whether or not there's uh, any kind of fatigue with firsts among the American mm. voting public. Um, and so I guess what I'm asking overall is whether, if you were to sort of be a pundit about it, you felt gender overall would be a help or a hindrance to her campaign next time round. Um, I actually think it's going to be a little of both, mm. um, you know, and, and part of it is how she strategically uh, or how she strategizes around gender. But but I, I think I think there is not fatigue over the first woman frame when it comes to the presidency in the United States. I think that fatigue has not set in um, uh, yet. And I say that because there is. Um, there's enormous enthusiasm. There, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who you know you go through the United States. You'll see bumper stickers, you know, ready for Hillary, right? Um, there are there are a lot of people who are uh, supporters of hers who are are very very uh, interested in seeing her become the first woman president. And so, and the fact that she is going to be the first woman president actually broadens her support among women uh, beyond what it might otherwise be. Because, you know, let's face it, Hillary Clinton is, for people who are like very liberal, you know, uh, and including many feminists, some of her her policy positions are can be a little problematic. I mean, she's quite she's more of a neocon on defense than many of the Republicans. I mean, she's quite conservative on on um, military and defense, for example. So, you know, so it's not it's not like you go down the list and every liberal would you know check the box that you know they agree totally with Hillary on the issue positions but i think she's you know i think the fact that she would be the first woman president and the and the people just feel like the time is right a lot of feminists and and supporters of hers really just feel like the time is right in the united states and it's about time we have a woman president um and uh and the fact that we've had barack obama who you know opened opened the door um, and in terms of having something other than a white male as president, um, you know, I think has even added to that desire. So, I, so I think there's not fatigue over the first woman frame. Thank you for that question. 
thank you very much, Sue, and thank you to Sarah and Orlando for kicking us off. Um, we've now got time to come to you for questions or comments. And I see hands going up straight away. We've we got mics, yeah. I'm going to take three questions at a time. Please uh, make it a question rather than a speech. <laughs> and please also just say who you are when you get to speak. We'll start at the back and come forwards. Uh, woman on the end, please. How much do you think um, the idea of um, attractiveness is linked to age when it comes to women um, candidates specifically? Because from the um, McCain campaign, there was a lot of comments about his age. But do you think comments about um, Hillary's age will be a different type of criticism? And do you think a, if Hillary was younger or a younger woman, do you think they'd have any similar commentary? Right. Go to the lady next door. Thank you. Um, my name's Roxanne. I'm a councillor, a local representative in northwest London. Um, my question to Professor Carroll is um, whether any of her any of her research, Professor, has focused on um, special women as special advisors, as uh, senior civil servants, and party political organisers in politics. Um, or if you haven't researched into that, whether this is an area you might be interested in. So um, my sense is that the party political machinery is very male. Uh, special advisors are male. A lot of the gatekeepers to power inside politics are male. And um, whether you know of any mm -hmm. research uh, mm -hmm. that focuses on that. All right, we'll, take, we'll just come one seat forward for the last of this round. Julia. Hello, I'm Julia. I'm a master's student, and I wanted to ask you if you could elaborate further how femininity could be used strategically in a political environment. <laughs> how femininity can be used strategically in a oh. political environment. You folks ask tough questions. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's... The answer is that uh, age can be a problem for an older, you know, male candidate as well. But I think, as that Rush Limbaugh quote shows, there's um, there's a particular there's an age sort of an age gender interaction. In other words, there's a particular way in which um, um, age becomes a different kind of problem for women. Because you know, if you think about it, certainly in American culture, but I think it's true here that. As men age, they become more distinguished. You know, I mean, men don't usually, if they have hair left, um, dye their hair, you know, uh, to look younger. Um, you know, whereas they, yeah, they 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 go gray and then they look distinguished. Um, we women, I won't say this isn't natural or anything, but. Um, <laughs> You know, we women, you know, hide the gray because it, it's devalued. Um, you know, it, you don't grow, as you get older as a woman, you don't get more distinguished. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, and so, so I think as a culture we deal with age differently, and I think it affects candidates a little differently. So, so a, an older woman is more of a problem than, a, than a, a, an older man, I think. But, but age could be an issue for a man as well. Um, and interestingly enough, in the U.S., I just I just saw some results or heard about some results where uh, apparently the younger generation of American voters isn't worried about Hillary Clinton's age. It's old folks like me <laughs> who are worried about Hillary Clinton's age, right? Because we know what it's like to be old, <laughs> and you, you know you don't have quite as much energy. Um, so the, the young people aren't really sure what age she is, and they're not quite as worried about it. I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, um, the question of women as special advisors or, you know, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, 
that they play, you know, that there's a lack of women at every <laughs> level, uh, you know, uh, in politics. Um, and um, and what I what I would refer you to, I think there's very little research. Certainly, there's very little research in the U.S. on this. I think it's sort of a, you know, a clearly political consultants play in the U.S. and campaigns play just a major role, and yet they're they're very much under researched. But I would like to refer you to one of my co-authors, my co-authors on some of my Hillary stuff, um, Clinton stuff in the last election, Kelly Dittmar, who was actually started out, she's now a colleague of mine at the Center for American Women in Politics, but she started out as a advisee of mine on her dissertation. And her dissertation is actually about uh, uh, political campaigns and consultants and the gendered nature, nature of uh, political campaigns. And there's a little bit in there, some of it which she's going to write more about, about the um, uh, and her book is coming out very soon from Temple University uh, Press. But the uh, she she's she's actually very interested in doing more research on um, whether women campaign consultants and men men who are campaign consultants end up giving different very different kinds of advice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she has a little bit of data on that, but not nearly as much as she wants. But it's it's a critically important question. I wish I had more um, that I could tell you. Um, and can femininity be used strategically? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, you know, and I think I think we will see. Uh, you know, I think Margaret Thatcher used it strategically. I think we will see uh, Hillary Clinton using feminine, femininity strategically. You know, it's a it's a uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting problem because you know femininity. It, it, how to use it differs. I mean, how. How if you have Sarah Palin as a candidate and you use femininity is very different than how you would use it if you have Hillary Clinton as a candidate. Um, uh, because of age, because of attractiveness, because of a variety of, um, of different kinds of things. And believe me, Sarah Palin, who is a very attractive woman and, and younger by quite a bit than Hillary Clinton, took an incredible, I mean, she took an incredible hit. She may not be your favorite person ideologically for some of you, but she, she got beat up badly. Um, you know, I mean, just go on the internet and Google and look for images of her uh, from, the, from the last, from the 2008 campaign. It was just pretty brutal, uh, the way her femininity was portrayed. But she used her femininity, and one of the ways she used it she used motherhood. I thought this was uh, the, the most interesting. People always find it strange that, you know, I find Sarah Palin fascinating because most people think she's, you know, a lot of Americans think she's not, you know, the brightest bulb on the block in terms of politics or something. Um, but I find her very interesting. And I think she, uh, you know, and I, I think she did something, I think she made, a very interesting change in American politics. She really had an impact. And that was in changing the way, to some extent, that changing the way uh, women who have children are, are viewed in terms of running for high-level office. Because a lot of the opposition, a lot of the questions always came from people on the right. It was the right who would say, you know, well, what about your children? Why aren't you home? Women's roles in the home. Why aren't you home with your children, taking care of your children? What are you doing going off to Washington, D.C.? And Sarah Palin, I think, really helped to, um, to temper a lot of that. So, uh, you know, so I, it'll take a while for us to see what the long-term consequences are and see how much change that really brought about. But I, but I actually do think she... Um, she she had an impact in that kind of way. 
So, enough. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with the guy. Oh, there's loads Questions. of Questions. There's loads of <laughs> um, Man in the white shirt here, and then we'll come along down to the front. Um, my question follows on from what you were saying, Professor Charles, about the quotas and whether or not we should have quotas, and the fact that the parties themselves are not taking the initiative on this issue. Given that we have a Green Party, why not have a Women's Party? <laughs> I will let, I'm going to let you answer that one. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll carry on going around yeah, there. Yeah, go around. Um, please, in red scarf. Thank you. This may be a peculiarly American question, but it, and it's a Hillary question. And it's a question that is to do with kind of a clash of democratic principles, and it's very hotly debated in my own household, whereas in 2008 I voted in the primary for Hillary and my husband voted for Barack Obama, because as important as it is to have, to break the glass ceiling and have a woman president, isn't it also important that we not have that we don't perpetuate political dynasties in the United States. And what my husband said is he will never vote for anybody whose surname is Bush or Clinton. Uh-huh. And, it, and it troubles me, even though I think Hillary's very well qualified and I have voted for her in the past. If you keep the mic and pass it behind you. Thanks. Hi, I really enjoyed your talk. Thanks so much. Um, I'm Frances Scott from the 50-50 campaign. And I read a book um, by Alison Wolfe, The XX Factor. And she suggested in the first chapter that people or young women didn't vote for Hillary Clinton um, because, in fact, they felt equal and the gender was irrelevant to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that it was feminism was dead, basically, and, and that her, her gender was irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is, has it changed? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Do you want to do those, your two first? Yeah, sure, I'll do my two first. Um, uh, you know, I think this question of political dynasty is going to be a, a, a significant question in this, in this election. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who, who feel that way. And um, it'll be an even more significant question if Jeb Bush becomes the <laughs> nominee on the Republican side. Um, uh, I didn't talk about it because I don't think it's a particularly gendered question. Um, but uh, and I don't really have an I don't I don't really have an answer to it. But I think it's something that her, the Clinton campaign will have to strategize about and try to figure out a way to uh, to counteract to some degree. So you know I I don't know what more to say about that. Um, young women didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I think that's exactly right. I think um, young voters in general were very caught up with Barack Obama and the fact that he that he represented something, he represented change in a major way, and they were very into the hope and change um, phenomenon. Um, uh, and there were a lot of, I think there were, there were young women who supported Hillary Clinton, but there were a, a, a lot who did not. Um, and this time, what I, I, this is just impressionistic, because I don't have um, good evidence on this, but but I'm seeing a, a, you know, okay, Barack Obama, you know, broke a barrier in one way, and I'm seeing a lot of those um, same students, because uh, I see mostly students, um, now actually wanting to see the gender barrier broken, um, and really, this time around, um, supporting Hillary Clinton. And I think the fact, I actually think the fact that Hillary Clinton 
became Secretary of State in, in Barack Obama's administration really helped her with a lot of the people who um, supported him the last time around, who might have had some reservations about her um, and some of the young people as well, because because it sort of put them on this, you know, they're, they're in the same kind of group now. You know, they're together. Um, you know, they might not be by the time the campaign's over and Hillary has to distance herself from him or something, but, uh, but you know, I, I, you know, so they're not opponents now. They're on the same team, um, and I, I, I think that makes that there is some change. I think. Thank you for that question. Um, and you get the. Yeah, I'm just going to interject if I may with one statistic, which people probably know, but just um, a study of. I've quoted this before at our ATP events, but a study of 1,941 rulers of independent countries during the 20th century found that only 27 women, roughly half of those who came to power, came through not dynastic paths into, into leadership. So that, that is really very important for women to get to senior political life. Women's Party. Thanks. I got terribly excited about the Swedish election, which I'd never worried about or thought about recently. Um, but... The Swedish Women's Party um, have MEPs, and they, but, but they were just under the ceiling. So there were lots of um, people staying up in the UK, it seems to me, including some of the men who do polling in the UK, who were also, because they told me the results um, before my friends in, in Sweden did. So, of course, there's a possibility of women's parties in principle. When there were debates about suffrage, there was a big concern that women might all vote together, and this would be terribly, you know, terrible, and maybe that's the reason why we don't give them the vote. I think I've got three very quick responses. Let's not confuse women's parties with feminist parties. Let's not presume that all women have the same attitudes. So we might want to think about women's parties versus feminist parties. I would also point to the electoral system. It might be much more attractive to create a women's party stroke feminist party, and I suggest the latter, because I'm feminist, um, in a system of PR, as opposed to perhaps using one's energies in a first-past-the-post system, although come next year, who knows what we're going to have over here, so maybe it's worth it. Um, I think it's also a question, and this is perhaps slightly more depressing, again, from my own biases, that younger feminism, which in the UK I think really is increasingly active, is looking extra-parliamentary. And for someone like me, who's an old-fashioned reformist, um, that's a bit of a shame for me. So, in fact, their activities are elsewhere, and so some of the mobilising dynamic and energy is perhaps not focused on Parliament, and I'd like to encourage them to face both ways, and I'll stop there. Okay. Thank you very much, Sarah. Okay, we have time for more questions. We'll take three in a row here, if we can do that. And anybody upstairs, wave to me if you want to put a question to. We'll come up. Thanks. Hi, I'm Margot Miller. I ran Hillary Clinton's overseas campaign in 2008. And <laughs> and was a delegate to the convention and oversaw the delegate selection process here. And gender balance rules hurt women. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just amongst Democrats abroad, which is a state party in the US democratic system, um, but other state parties as well, because the gender balance rules require parity. Um, it's not a ceiling. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not a floor. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something to think about whenever you're talking about quotas and gender balance and to look at, again, unintended consequences. Um, I also threw my hat in to run for Congress. <laughs> and I was very struck by, I'd never seen the data presented in the way in which you had. And it's very rare that I find myself checking all the boxes with my own experiences. So that was very interesting and useful for me. But my question is, when I was 
running for Congress, I had a lot of, or exploring the run, I had a lot of people entrenched in New York state politics say to me, why aren't you running at the local level? Why aren't you running at the state level? Why are you leapfrogging? In New York State, there's a residency requirement, which I suspect there are in a lot of other states. So I wasn't even eligible to run at the state and local level. I could, mm. There's no residency requirement at the federal level. You just have to be a resident when you're sworn in. And I'm wondering if that came up at all in your research as to one of the potential barriers to more women getting into office, this expectation that you have to play by a certain set of rules and check certain boxes within the local parties and then barriers to women who oftentimes are moving around because of other aspects of their lives and therefore don't, don't meet the residency requirements. Thank you. Mm. Hi, uh, Dee Goddard. I'm a PhD student in uh, women's executive appointments at the University of Kent. Um, I had just had a question kind of in light of my own research and it kind of links to yours. I was just wondering if you had any kind of data on the perceptions of women's careers in state legislatures, where they do, whether they do see it as a platform to go up the career ladder in US politics and whether they do perceive that in the same way as men or whether they are looking perhaps just at the local level to stay within that career rank, whether they're really perceiving that this will be a career move that will take them further. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Terrell Carver from um, the University of Bristol and also the PSA executive. Um, some things come up in the discussion that I was rather expecting to hear um, in the studies that you've done uh, in terms of what you're looking for, explanatory factors and the kinds of questions that you ask people. And that was precisely the um, route, uh, particularly at higher levels, that women have taken into office, which is being uh, a widow, a daughter, a daughter-in-law, something like that. But then that led me to think about uh, the male case. Now, there's probably no case where a widower has got in for that particular reason, although it would be interesting if there were. So I'm, you know, so I'm suggesting, how do men do it? And actually, dynasties are highly gendered. Men do it by being fathers, sons, grandfathers, uh, uncles, cousins, um, sons-in-law, and all that kind of thing. So it's basically primogeniture, a male line, and fratriarchy that we're looking at. So it's, it's another version of how women lose and men gain, um, in a sense, through the same kind of mechanism. So you'll know, because I've lost track, of the <laughs> junior Kennedys, I suspect that almost all of them are boys. So my question is, did this um, kind of gendered version of dynasty come up in your studies? Thank you. And I suspect this will be the last round, so I'm going to let the lady upstairs put her question. That's okay. Hi, I'm Kate Townsend, and I'm an LSE grad of the MPA program. Um, I just wanted to ask your views on structural barriers in terms of uh, time commitments and compatibility with family demands, which isn't unique to politics per se, but in an extreme case, you know, uh, uh, Congress or legislative legislative debate can go on for maybe 24 hours on end, and whether this is something that you've studied in terms of uh, something that can actually be changed or whether it's something that just needs to be accepted. Um, uh, running for Congress... Okay, let's see. The first question was about... <laughs> there are too many questions. I don't remember them all. Um, <laughs> running for Congress and... and uh, and being asked about why you're not running at the at the local level, is there um, a different set of rules for women? Do women have to more move up? You know, the, um, 
we don't, I don't have great data on that that I can point to, but, um, but I, I think that happens more, much more commonly for women than for men, that women are suggested. You know, I mean, if you look at Congress, for example, I mean, I come from the state of New Jersey where we've had Bill Bradley, who was a basketball player, um, Frank Lautenberg, who was a business executive, um, as senators, John Corzine, as, who was a Wall Street investment uh, guy as our governor. I mean, you know, where men just jump in, la they move laterally. They move from another sector into politics. And I, I frequently have said, well, you know, we need to start thinking about that for women, too. We need to get women to just, you know, take whatever success they've had in one sector and, you know, move, move over to politics. Um, you know, so so I think there's there's less of the feeling among men that they have to kind of move up the system. I think women are, you know, where parties have some control, and in the United States, that's very varied. Like we have strong parties in the state of New Jersey. Um, they they literally slate candidates, so you have to you know you have to get through party approval. Other states, the you know there are states where the parties don't matter at all. We have a lot of variability, um, but where there are gatekeepers. You know whether it be funders or whether it be uh, party leaders. I, I think women. I think women uh, are expected to have spent time in the trenches um, and to have frequently and to work work their ways up um, and and uh, and not start running for Congress as their first office. Now maybe the state maybe the state legislature in some states because there's enormous variability across those states. But um, but anyway, I don't have great data on that. But I but I think. Uh, you know what you're thinking is exactly is exactly right. Um, uh, the second the second question was about career career ladders um, and uh, moving up to higher office. This is another thing that we don't have. Uh, you know, we don't have uh, a, a lot of great data on in terms of uh, whether uh, you know what proportion of the women who are serving. In these offices, I do know that when you look at the women who are in Congress, um, a lot of a, a large proportion of them have experience at the state level. Um, you know, there are not very many women in Congress who uh, a lot of them come out of the state legislature, state senate, state house, or they've served in statewide elective office of some sort. Um, you know, suggesting there is some sort of career ladder at work. The question really is, why isn't there? Uh, why, why aren't there more of them kind of uh, moving up? And my, and my guess is it has to do with more with political opportunities because you really have to be a woman who's, in, who's serving in a state legislature, for example, and, and then the congressional seat has to open up in your district. You can't sort of move to a completely different district. So, uh, you know, so there, it interacts a lot with uh, political, political opportunities. Um, but but we, don't, we don't have great data on that one either. Um, uh, political dynasties are primarily gendered. I think that's a, I think that's a really excellent point. Um, uh, and and the you know the the route to office. I mean, in the United States, the route to office that women took for uh, prior to say the 1970s, almost all women took to Congress, was the over his dead body route. Um, you know, which was they followed they followed usually their husband, but not always. Uh, they succeeded a man 
uh, took over a man's seat when um, when he died, and like I said, it was usually the husband. And some of them lasted for a long time, like Margaret Chase Smith, who uh, ran time and time again, served both in the House and the Senate, and and served had a very distinguished career. Um, you know, and others just filled out the term and then um, disappeared. But that was the major route into office, and um, that's. That still happens uh, to some to some extent, um, but it's much less frequent today than it was. In fact, some of the research I've done uh, in Congress, we have like I think there are just there's a small handful of uh, the women in Congress, and we're now at a hundred um, who who actually have succeeded their husbands. Um, uh, but we did some research in New Jersey. I'll, I'll tell you one of the real ways to get more women into office. We did a research in New Jersey. We we, we used to be, I was, it was embarrassing. I mean, we had the Center for American Women in Politics in the state of New Jersey. And we were 43rd in the among the 50 states in the representation of women in our state legislature. It was just awful. And then all of a sudden we jumped up to about 12 in a, you know, in a matter of just two or three years. And what happened is it, politics are kind of corrupt in New Jersey. I mean, you, you know, you, you all may have seen The Sopranos. Uh, well, uh, it's it's a little bit like that in politics in New Jersey. And um, oh, well, that's an, that's an overstatement. But um, but anyway, uh, so a lot of what happened was it was um, the, some of, some of the women got in because husbands died, um, you know, and got in, got in that way. Not always right away, but worked worked their way in to get the, the husband seat. But a lot of them got in because uh, legislators were indicted. <laughs> Um, or, or were under suspicion, had to, to, to resign from, and and the, and as I said, we're in a we're in a state where parties are strong, and so the party leaders knew they had a crisis, and they thought, well, you have a crisis, appoint a woman, um, you know, appoint a woman because the, they won't they won't <laughs> think a woman, yeah, is dishonest, and and so they appointed women, and this time, what was different this time? We've always had this problem in New Jersey, but what was different this time is we had more women in place. Mm. who were ready to move into those positions. And some of it was because um, at the Center for American Women in Politics, we have done political trainings, um, trainings of women candidates for years and years and years. And there's an incredible network now of, uh, of women that didn't used to exist in the state. It's not just due to our trainings, but, um, but our trainings have played, played a part. So, um, you know, so, so it can make a difference. But the, but the uh, widow and widow rally was an important one, um, and um, and compatibility with with uh, family demands. I mean, this is this is a this is it is a you know it's a societal problem. It's a problem for political women. It's a problem for any professional for professional women in our you know in in our society, well, American society, but I assume here as well. Um, uh, you know, in that uh, you know having a demanding career, and and the problem with politics and trying to get young women into politics is that this is why we often find older women going into politics. In part, mm -hmm. is is I mean, they already have two jobs. They have a job at home, you know, taking care of the household and the kids, and they have a demanding career. And now we want them to take a third job, which is politics. I mean, because it is a full-time job on top of whatever else you're doing. Um, often, uh, if you do it well, um, and and if it involves moving to Washington D.C. or something, that's 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 a very big change. So what we find is that 
the um, the average age of women legislators is somewhere around like 50 or something. I mean, it's I mean they wait they tend to wait till their children are grown, and then uh, run for office when they're when the demands of their family responsibilities have lessened. And it's hard to figure out how to. Uh, to solve that issue. That's one that I think, you know, we need societal change. But, but what Kira and I would argue is that maybe political change, maybe getting more women into public office, maybe that's got to come first because maybe they need to help to change mm -hmm. the, put pressure to help change the laws and the, and the, uh, and the way things, you know, the, the, the structures so that, so that there are more, I mean, we need, you know, we need, laws that will allow women much more flexibility um, and workplaces need to be much more flexible so you know uh, so having more women in office can help to bring that about but thank you for that question thank you for all the questions I want to do about the male domestic line that's the one I just did just finished mm -hmm. okay I think the one from the gallery all right um, I think we've had a great discussion tonight we're out, we're out of time now um, but Sue, thank you so much for a really fantastic lecture and you covered so much of the area that really, we're really interested in looking at and so many patterns and um, themes you pulled out we're, we're hearing from women we're talking to over here as well so I think, although your study was particularly the US right. I think a lot of themes resonate with women's experiences elsewhere not just here, but in other parts of the world too uh, so thank you very much for that and thank you to Sarah and Orlando for joining us. Thank you to the Political Studies Association for doing this event with us tonight. Can I just flag also for the Above the Parapet project that we have one more event this term. Uh, next Monday, in fact, we have Lord Renwick speaking uh, about his new book, <coughs> excuse me, called Ready for Hillary. <laughs> Portrait of a President in Waiting. So those of you interested in American politics and Hillary's potential future, please come back to join us for that discussion next week. Um, let me just uh, ask you to join me in thanking Sue Carroll again for her fantastic lecture tonight. Thank you.